Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. We're grateful that you worship Jesus, and B, we're very honored that you would choose to worship him here with us, and we're glad to have you just be a part of this experience. Uh, Normally at this point in time, for those of you that attend here regularly, I'll say open your Bibles to such and such a passage, but this morning is going to be unique like it was last week in such a way that we're going to take the story of the crucifixion and look at it from a different angle. Last week, we focused specifically on what was done to Jesus on the cross to understand the gravity of that moment and understand the suffering that Jesus went through, both physically and spiritually on the cross. This week, we're going to look at it in a different perspective. We're going to look at why he did what he did and what he offers us through the cross. So we're going to be taking the stories out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, excuse me, mixing them together. But I'd like you to open your Bibles to a strange passage, Psalm 22. I'd like you to just have that open in your Bible. So when I get to this about halfway through the message, I want you to have this available because you're going to see it's the sinking spot for all of us to understand what we're talking about this morning. So Psalm 22, if you just make that ready. The rest of the, uh, we're not, this isn't the way we really love to do it here, but the rest of the scriptures will just be on the screen for you to be able to, to, to look at, or you can go to the version uh, uh edition of your app, excuse me, on your phone, and you can find uh, live events and you can see the notes for today are available to you there as well. So all of that uh, setup, I want to talk you through what the uh, cross has to say to us about why Jesus did what he did. And if you and I pay attention to it closely, we're going to understand that Jesus offers us some things that are beyond salvation. He offers us something beautiful even for our today. You see, what we've focused on was how many times Jesus could have released himself from the suffering of the cross by simply saying the truth. Now, I'm not suggesting he lied, but he said nothing. It fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53, where it says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a, <clears throat> like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In the hands of the judges, in the face of the executioners, Jesus could have spoken two or three very clear words and he would have been released, but he chose not to so that he could be our sacrifice, so that he could trade places with us. He remained as silent as a lamb before its shearer, being a Passover lamb for all of us. But Jesus doesn't remain silent the whole time. And what I want us to focus on this morning is that when he does speak, what is he revealing? So he allows himself to be executed, but it's during the execution that Jesus says words. There are seven sayings found in the Gospels from the cross, and I want us to focus on those because if we pay attention to what he's doing, we're going to understand what he's offering us and why it matters. So I want to spend a little bit of time on that this morning. So it's 9 a.m., the third hour according to the text. Mark tells us it was the third hour when they crucified him. John tells us that carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. By the best uh, mathematics I can do, I went to Bible college so we didn't have math, but I tried to add it up the best I can, and it's somewhere between 25 and 30 hours that Jesus has been awake since he last slept, obviously. But I want to tell you that not only has he been up at least 24 hours, and possibly as many as 30. But during that time, he's fatigued. He's not eaten. He's been assaulted. He's been tortured. He's been gravely injured. 
and then he's nailed to a cross. So on top of the natural fatigue of being up an entire day, he's been beaten to the point of death. He's been disfigured to the point that the prophets say he was hardly recognizable as human. And then they ran spikes through his wrists and spikes through both legs into a post. They dropped him in that post. And in that moment, death came on Jesus in a powerful way. This physical man was breaking down. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus would begin to speak words that matter to us. Let's look at the first thing he says on the cross, and I'd like to refer to it as words of mercy. As Jesus is put, as the cross post, as he's nailed and tied to that, then he's affixed to the center post, and they would drop that on there, and his body would jar, and he would land, and it would tear at his arms and his legs, and on top of everything else he's gone through. And in the midst of this, the crowd is not satiated that he's being executed. They continue to mock him, belittle him, and make fun of him. Matthew tells us this. And the people passing by shouted abuse. If you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. Mark tells us the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Luke tells us that the soldiers jumped in on it. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In the midst of this terrible moment, this tragic moment, the inhumanity of those around Jesus is startling. It... it, fulfills the prophecy found in that passage you have open, Psalm twenty-two, seventeen. They look and gloat over me, the prophet said. And Jesus would be there suffering inhumanely. And all they could do was find time to make fun of him and call him out and say, save yourself if you're so powerful. In the midst of all of that hatred and spewing of all of that anger toward his innocence, Jesus speaks these words, Luke says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, I'm going to contest this morning, they did know what they were doing. How about you? Would you agree? They knew exactly what they were doing, but Jesus is not lying. I'm not suggesting that. What Jesus is showing is that they don't understand in their arrogance and in their anger the depth of what they're doing. And Jesus doesn't say a word to this moment. Instead of calling out their judgment and indicting them, and telling them how cruel and wrong they are, and how inhumane they are, and how they're created by God for something greater than that. Jesus does nothing with that. He instead speaks words of mercy. For the ones that are mocking him, he asks God to what? Forgive them. Could you have done that? I couldn't have. I I would wish I could, but I've been me for 54 years. I could not have done that. And yet in this moment, Jesus offers words of mercy to their blind arrogance. It would fulfill Isaiah 53. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. Jesus was praying for them while they were praying on him, spelled a little differently, huh? And in that moment, he displays exactly who he is. And it's a beautiful sight. The mercy of our God, our King, dying on that cross. And then there are words of pardon This is a scene of just, it makes no sense to me. In Luke 23, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. He just joins in with the crowd, the religious leaders, the Romans, the soldiers, the the passerbys are all making fun of him. And then the criminal joins in. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you were under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two powerful moments in this interaction. First of all, you have a guilty man who's actually confessing he's guilty. He says to the other one, shut up, we deserve this. He doesn't. It's not common for someone who's been condemned to death to admit they've done what they're condemned for. And yet Jesus then says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I don't want us to snap so far ahead in the story that we put him in heaven because that's not what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word paradise. It's the picture of a garden. It would flash back to the images of the Garden of Eden in Genesis or take us to the garden in the book of Revelation when Jesus has restored heaven and earth and we live in that garden environment with God again where he walks with us and where everything is at peace and everything is the way God had created it and recreated it. What he's saying to Jesus, or what he's saying to this man on the cross with him, Jesus says, today I will take care of you. I will forgive you. You will go where those who have been saved by my blood will go. What a beautiful word of pardon to a man who moments before was shredding him, was making fun of him, and had condemned him as well. It shows the heart of our king. You see, Jesus was not being controlled by man's power. He was not being controlled by Judas's betrayal. He was not being controlled by the Roman soldiers. Jesus was being compelled by love to not only offer mercy, but to offer forgiveness. And to offer forgiveness that takes us to a place that his body and blood has prepared for us. This isn't just a moment in time. This is an action that overcomes all of time. Words of mercy and pardon. Words of compassion. The third saying on the cross shows the sight of Jesus that amazes me even yet. In John chapter 19, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, and that is John, who's recording this, he said to her, woman, he is your son. And he said to the disciple, she is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. John would record it was that moment. I want you to think about this under the agony of these last 25 to 30 hours as Jesus suffers this incredibly amount of torture and pain. His soul is suffering, his body is suffering. He looks down and he sees his mom at the foot of the cross. And in an act of compassion, he speaks to his mother. And he simply says to John, take her as your mother. And he says to Mary, go with John. Now we believe that there was a familial relationship anyway. Many believe that James and John were the cousins of Jesus. So this would have been a family thing. And Jesus being the oldest son, it would have been his obligation, and this is why we believe Joseph is gone, to have Mary taken care of. And in that moment, I want you to just fathom for a second. Stop and pause. How in the world could he have been, compared, he have been concerned rather, about what Mary was going through with everything he was going through? It reveals a side of our king that is so different than you and I. And he looks down in a moment of compassion. He says... Mary, go with John. John, take her. And John does. And John records that he took her into his home and he cared for her as if it was his mom. And all of this would come to fulfill a passage that's found in Luke chapter 2. It says here, a sword will pierce your soul too. This was said over Mary when she brought baby Jesus into the temple to have him consecrated. You see, Jewish families would take their firstborn and give it back to God as a gift. And God would allow them to keep it, but it was to be given to the to God as the firstborn, his, his right of first fruit. 
And when they took Jesus into the temple, Simeon, who had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah, when he held the baby, the Holy Spirit told him, this is the child. And he prophesied over this child. And then he looked at Mary and he said these words, this child will pierce your soul. And Jesus knew at the moment of the cross that that prophecy had come true. And he told John to take Mary away. A powerful moment. One place I read said something I'd never thought of. He said that Mary's silence is significant. If anyone could have rescued Jesus, it was his mother. All she, had to do, all she had to do is announce that his claims were false and he would have been freed. And we stop and go, well, she never would have done that. Let's stop for a second. Moms, can I ask you a question? Would you move heaven and earth to keep your child from going through what Jesus was going through right now? I know the answer. Absolutely. And in this moment, Mary's silence is silence of faith. She knows why Jesus was given to her. She knows why Jesus came, and she submits to the Father, and Jesus shows compassion to her. Our king was not only concerned about stopping the judgment on all of us, he's also concerned about your every moment. Does Jesus not know he's going to rise from the dead in three days? Of course he does. Why does he look at Mary and go, just hold on? He doesn't. He cares about the today while we await for the resurrection. You don't have a king who's not concerned about you right now. You don't have a king who's so, like, just be big picture. No, Jesus is as concerned as these individual moments you're experiencing, both good and bad, as he is about the greater moments that are coming. Our king is good. It's now noon. He's been hanging on the cross for three hours. Mark tells us that the, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours, all of Judea was covered in darkness. Is the opposite of the light that they were used to. It's the epitome of the good versus evil that's taking place in this moment throughout history. This is more than just imagery, it's important. And then Jesus offers the fourth set of words from the cross, and <clears throat> I'm going to spend a little more time on this than the others, and let me explain my, because this is the crux, this is the actual moment in which all of history is flipped on its head. It's the words of suffering. See, Matthew records that Jesus at the ninth hour, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the statements that Jesus will make on the cross, these are easily the most perplexing and for some the most disturbing of all the words he'll say. This is the moment we begin to wonder about the goodness of God. Here his son is doing exactly what he was asked to do. He's going through all of this, this tumult to accomplish what the Passover lamb must. And his father leaves him. And some become angry and some say, I don't like it. It actually uses the word here that Jesus screamed these words. He didn't just raise his voice. In his brokenness, he hollers in such a way that it startles the crowd. And they don't understand what he said and they begin to speculate what it was, but it's clear. Now, for some of us, we wonder, is this the moment Jesus lost it? Did he just snap right here? Did he, did he just cry out, God, you're failing me? Or did he cry out, I can't take it anymore? I, I don't want to make light of this moment, but I see it in our culture. It, it, it draws a passion out of me that can be awkward at times. But it discourages me when someone does something that's wrong or they, they choose to break a rule and then they get caught. And so the cameras come on them and they're put on television, which is horrible to start with. And they have this big public moment and then they say these words and they're like, well, that's not, that doesn't represent who I am. I just don't, I don't want to speak about it again. Of, of course it represents who you are. 
And I don't say that like I gloat over that. There have been many, many times things have come out of my face that haven't been right. And I want to believe that's not who I am. But you know what I know the truth? That is who I am. And unless I repent and seek the cleansing work of God, I'm going to remain that guy. And for 54 years, it's not been fun being this guy. I need some help. How about you? And if we don't come to this reality, but sometimes we think Jesus cried out on the cross. He had a weak moment and he cried out, God, where'd you go? And we're like, I'll give him a break. He's been suffering. No, no. You need to understand exactly what Jesus is doing here. A friend of mine who's a preacher in Michigan had the best uh, explanation of it. But unfortunately, for those of you under 30, I have to explain what a hymn is. Okay. Used to be this book in our church that had all the music and we sang and it had these little things in front of it, which was called music. But we'll talk about that another day. Anyway, my friend Ken had the best illustration. I've not forgotten it. He said that if he were dying in the hospital and his boys walked into the hospital room and they heard their father saying these words, I was sinking deep in sin, far from a peaceful shore. There's a number of people in this room who know exactly what he's quoting. It's a hymn known as Love Lifted Me. And Ken's example was, my boys would know that that's my favorite church song. And if they walked in the room, they wouldn't think I was hallucinating about being on a beach. They would understand that I'm quoting one of my favorite songs of hope, that while I was sinking deep in sin, far from a peaceful shore, buried deeply within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. When Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm, which is in front of you, He's actually triggering his audience to know that he is calling out the promise of a song of the church all the way back to King David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not having a bad moment. And he's not calling out my pain. And he's not crying out my feelings. Understand this theologically. Jesus is experiencing hell. And when he begins to experience hell, which is a separation of God because of sin in our life, when the sins of the world are laid on him in that ninth hour at three o'clock that afternoon, when that came boring down on him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people don't like this. Like, how could the wrath of God overcome the love of God in this moment? You need to understand, when God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus offered him and the sins of the world were laid on him, God in his holiness had to turn from that sin and allow Jesus to receive it all. And with that came the separation. For the first time in his existence, Jesus was experiencing hell, which is separation from God covered in darkness. Now the good news, church, before you get all down on God, the good news is he doesn't stay abandoned, does he? He's raised to life by the power of God. You see, God didn't just walk away when Jesus was suffering on the cross. God joined him in the suffering. You don't think it hurt the father to be separated from his son? They both experienced the pain of the wrath of holiness against sin. And in that moment, see, Jesus did not ask God to forgive them, and God's like, I don't want to. And God didn't ask Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus was like, I don't want to. It was the Father and the Son working together to bring us hope. John Stott says it simply. It was divine love triumphing over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. It was the divine love of God overcoming divine wrath by God's own divine self-sacrifice. 
It's a beautiful moment. Jesus was singing his song. But I'm going to give you homework. And I know you're not going to do it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If you want to be enriched this week, the reason I have you open the 22nd Psalm is because I want you to understand that if you fathom what takes place in the first 18 verses of the 22nd Psalm, then you and I can celebrate what takes place between verses 19 and 31. In other words, you can't have the back half of that psalm until you've had the first half of it. And Jesus looked at every one of us and he said, I'll take the first half so you can have the second half. Let's read just a sampling of it. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And Jesus wore all of this so that you and I could understand verses 19 through 31, which ends triumphantly. Verse 31 says, They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn he has done it. They will proclaim his righteousness. And we will scream, he did it. Church, that's why we exist. We don't exist for self-help. We don't exist so you feel better about yourself. We don't exist so we can fix your kids. The church exists so our generation can stand up and say what Jesus did, he did for us and for everyone else who might believe by faith. We get to celebrate his suffering. And by seeing the way he suffered and the way our king suffered, we get to do the thing that matters most. We get to declare that even when we suffer for his kingdom, God is not abandoning us. God is with us and he will free us through the resurrection. That's the good news of the church. It's not do better and try harder. It's not fix this and fix that. The glory of the church is being able to say that what Jesus Christ did matters. And even if we suffer for his kingdom, and we will, if we suffer for his kingdom, it's worth it. The church is that testimony. And I also want you to know that don't you realize every place he was betrayed and every place he was tempted and every place, he faced, or place that Jesus faced suffering, he used scripture? He held on to the promises of God. He didn't hold on to his own strength. He held on to the promises that even if this sacrifice took his life, God would deliver him. And you and I have that same hope. Words of mercy, pardon, compassion, and suffering. How about words of need? Or maybe if I were smarter, I would have just called it words of humanity. John tells us Jesus knew that everything was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was placed there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it to his lips. It seems odd that one of the great seven sayings of the cross would be, I'm thirsty. That seems so insignificant in comparison. But understand this, for those people who like to say that he was just God and he wasn't man and his suffering wasn't real, this statement tells us a little bit different. His cry for something to drink showed that his body was breaking. Our king was physically dying. 
malnutritioned at this point, dehydrated at this point. The psalm says you could see his, the bones in his body. His body was breaking down, and Jesus cried out, I'm thirsty. He not only cried out thirsty to show us that he was a human and he had needs just like you and me and that sometimes we have to give all of that to God in this moment, but he also fulfills the passage of Scripture. Psalm 69. They gave me gall for my food and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus knew that the events were coming to a conclusion and he knew the scriptures and wanted to fulfill it all. And this is where the king shows us his humanity sacrificed instead of ours. Beautiful moment. Sixth are the words of faithfulness. John 19, John records when Jesus had tasted it, he said it is finished. The apostle Paul and the writer of the book of Hebrews quite interesting enough, states that Jesus did it once and for all. They, they go to great lengths to tell us that this sacrifice finished it. And if Jesus finished it, there's nothing you and I add to it. The, the gospel message is not that Jesus died on the cross, so Mark, you just need to do more. That's not the message of the gospel. The message, of, in fact, there's a, there's a letter written in the New Testament that says you got to stop trying to add to what Jesus did. Well, there's actually two. The letter to the Hebrew Christians and the book of Galatians, which simply says, when Jesus said it is finished, church, it is what? There's, there's nothing to be added to it. What Jesus does on the cross was everything God needed him to do so that you and I can walk out of our tombs upon our death because of what Jesus Christ did, not because of what you and I do. And that doesn't give us license to go, peace, I'm out. No, that's not the point either. Because if you're going to have a savior, he can't be your savior unless he becomes your king. And that's why we refer to him as King Jesus, to remind ourselves that we're not equals. He is our sovereign Lord, and we are happy to have him. You see, Psalm 22, verse 31, they shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall yet be born that he has what? finished it. It is our message. The cross is the moment in history in which the wrath of God and the love of God came together in loving sacrifice for us. And the vows that he offered to be faithful unto death are the vows that he has now completed. Our king demonstrates a faithfulness that has run the race and completed the race. I don't want to make light of it, but I, I'll do it anyway. I hate running. Those of you that run, may God have mercy on your souls. The only time I've ever run in my life was when a coach got mad at me for being mouthy and Christian run. That's the only time I've ever chosen. I didn't even choose. I had to run. And I hate running. There's nothing about it that's fun. Some of you are like, oh, I just love it. No, you lie. You lie. Just go ahead. Keep lying. We're not buying it. But here's the good news. Jesus is calling us to run a race. And we're like, uh-oh. Sounds hard. Uh-huh. It'll kill you. Biblically. It will kill you. But here's the good news, and I hope this is good news for you because it is for me. You and I don't have to win it. It's already been won. Just finish. And if you find yourself stopped halfway through the race going, I'm not sure anymore, get back in it. All Jesus says is, no, follow me. Get back in it. You don't have to win the race. It's been won. Finish it. Be faithful to Jesus like he was faithful to you. Finish the responsibilities our king asks of us. Seven are words of hope. Luke tells us this in Luke 23. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. 
Father, into your hands. If you wonder if Jesus was mad at God when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please understand that just moments later, I believe minutes later, the person you might believe that was mad at God for abandoning him is now saying to his father, Dad, I'm coming home. There's no anger. There's no fury. There's no dissension. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that is the prayer that you and I get to pray today. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we can commit our entire lives into the Father's hands and we can trust him. It's words of hope. There are some of us right now in this room that are struggling with medical issues or relationship issues or maybe we just know the sin in our life is breaking us down and we don't even know how to begin to confess it and you wonder if there's hope, commit your life into the hands of the Father. He will receive you by his faithfulness through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's now three in the afternoon. Matthew 27 says, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. You might not remember because it was several months ago that we started on Sunday of this week when Jesus entered into the holy city on what we called Palm Sunday. And as he entered the city, the crowd was crying out and Jesus said something fascinating. He said, if you don't cry out, what will? Anyone? The rocks will cry out. And what happened on the moment that he became the perfect sacrifice for all sin? The rocks did what? They cried out. Just like he said. I think he knows what he's talking about. So there are only seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, but your preacher is going to commit blasphemy and talk about the eighth saying of the cross. Because this isn't what Jesus said. This is what you and I get to say. Words of life. In Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23, surely he was the Son of God, and those words were spoken by a Roman soldier, a paid executioner. And he cried out, surely he was the Son of God. And that is a statement that each one of us are called to make. You see, sex won't save you, jobs won't save you, fortune won't save you, reputation won't save you, high school trophies won't save you, promotions won't save you, what your neighbors think of you won't save you. And I'm not making fun of you, but there are many things in our lives that we've replaced God with because I don't know that God's enough, but I'm going to make money and I'm going to make a name and I'm going to have these relationships. And we build ourselves on being saved by something. The good news of the cross is that the only thing that can save you is that man who went through those moments on that cross. That's the only thing that lasts. Everything else will be left behind when you're done. Jesus Christ will not be left behind. He will greet you. He will guide you, and he will call you home. Paul said to the early church in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I pass on as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. God said it would happen. It happened. Do you believe it? In Romans, Paul said to the church in Rome, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Can you say what was said at the cross? Jesus was the son of God. But please understand this, as I said earlier. It's easy in America to want a savior and then to be left alone. But that's not what the gospel offers us. The gospel offers us a kingdom 
that we can enter into God's kingdom, restored like it was in the Garden of Eden, that you and I are allowed, no matter our background, no matter all that we've done in rebellion against God, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can enter back into the kingdom and give ourselves back to a good, kind, loving king. But it will cost you a cross. Jesus said in Luke 9, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And taking up our crosses will not look that different from Jesus. It will require a dependence on the scriptures. It will require a denial of our rights to be left alone and to remain unresponsive to what others need. It will require a sacrifice of all that we are. And should we do this and experience the cross fully in our own lives, We're not adding to what Jesus did. We're exemplifying what Jesus did. Then Psalm 22, 31 is ours. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, it is finished. So whether you're here on a Sunday morning because someone got you to come for lunch or got you to come to try it out and you're just kicking the tires on what faith means, we really love that you're here. But let me tell you, the reason we gather is to point out who Jesus Christ is so that you can believe in your own heart by faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And for those of us who have said this before, that he is my Savior, he is my Lord, he is the Son of God, but you find yourself, you're not finishing the race, you've stopped, you've been distracted, you've walked off the track, you tried it, it doesn't work for you, We still are here for the same purpose, to remind you that Jesus is the Son of God and he's worth pursuing with all that you are, both as Savior and King, and he deserves that. Maybe you want to know more about this. We're not expecting, because I stood up here for way too long and talked, that you're like, ah, but please understand, when the gospel message goes out, it's not uncommon for people that hear it to say these words, what must I do to be saved? And if God is laying that question on your heart, have a conversation. We're not going to get your arm twisted behind your back and make you do something for the crowds. We don't do that. We want to invite you into something. There's a bunch of satisfied customers in this room who believe in Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? Amen. And if you have a conversation, maybe you don't want to talk to the pastor because he's spitting everywhere and all freaked out and you don't know him. Cool. Talk to the people sitting next to you. But don't leave here today thinking, yeah, he might be. No, he is. You need to figure it out. Have a conversation. Around these rooms are four tables with lamps lit. We'd love for you to go to one of these tables after the service is over. There will be some people that will meet you at those tables that would love to begin a conversation. Or maybe you want to talk to some of us out at the prayer center. There'll be a bunch of staff and our elders will be out there. Just come have a conversation. Come grab me or someone else who's not occupied with someone and simply say, I'd like to know more about this becoming a disciple because that's why we're here is to help people find their fullness in Jesus Christ. It's not to build a large crowd. It's to help people know who Christ is. So how would you respond? Is he the son of the living God? And if he is, isn't he worth everything? Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.